His description of Sicleos Reyes. Sicleos looked like a weasel, fought like a goose, and had the courage of an especially brave ewe. Which is, a, if you don't know, is a female sheep. Um, Robbie Michael wants to bring him in alive, obviously, because he's so valuable. Mm. But um, one of the ways they try to do that is they keep firing these volleys of arrows towards the boat. And I'm just thinking, what is he doing? Well, it's like the idea of a warning shot being fired with a with a shotgun, isn't it? It's like, once you pull the trigger, <laughs> you really don't have any control over those little ball bearings. Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. We're doing a new book. Uh, we're doing the third in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series. And it's called A Storm of Swords. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. So A, a Storm of Swords. Uh, now, it's a bit strange this because depending on how you buy it, um, you could have two different versions. So there's one version which is just one massive book called A Storm of Swords. And there's another version which is it's sort of two smaller books. So it's A Storm of Swords Part, part 1. Steel and Snow, and A Storm of Swords Part 2, Fire and Goat. Fire and Blood, I think. And Fire and Blood. Fire and, Fire and Blood. Oh, no. Blood and Gold. <laughs> blood, and, yeah. blood, Gold, Fire, <coughs> vaguely yeah. portentous language. That's what it's called. Yeah, Part 2, Blood and Gold. Uh, so we're going to do it that way. So we've got effectively got Storm of Swords as two books. So this is, so this is going to be uh, Storm of Swords... Book one, Steel and Snow, if you like. And we're going to break this down into a few parts. We normally do these in ten parts. It's going to have to be a bit less because um, of the way the material works out. So it's probably going to be about five or six parts we'll do this in. And the reason we're doing it in sort of these two books rather than the one big one is that uh, it runs better with the with the TV series as well. So most of the material we cover in this uh, Steel and Snow will correspond to series three of Game of Thrones on, on TV and then the the stuff in, in, in Fire and... What was it? Not Fire. In Blood and Gold will will correspond largely to what's going on in series four, we think. You'd think, wouldn't you, that it would be a bit more straightforward than this. There's yeah. a book and Just then there's a, a TV series and you read them <laughs> alongside each other. And yeah. we, we had such naive dreams when we set out and then it turns out that George Martin doesn't give a shit <laughs> and it all well, gets cut up and moved around and stuff for the TV series. Yeah, well, the thing is that the first book pretty much follow you know the, se- the series follows the first book really closely. But then, as the further you go, as we found through book two, things really sort of started to branch off between the book and the series, and it only gets sort of worse from here on with that. <laughs> so basically, if you're here for the book, you're in the you're in the right place. If you're here for the series. You've come to the wrong place. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's the world's worst Tyrion Lannister impression. <laughs> it's the continued Tyrion Lannister impression, impression that nobody's been calling for. Other than <laughs> Apart from you. <laughs> dance, yeah. monkey, dance. That's what you want to do. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so, this, so let, let, let's get into this, this book then. Uh, A Storm of Swords, book one, Steel and Snow. And this part... We're going to read from, uh, obviously, the very start, up until page, if you've got the paperback, page 122, which is a chapter about Bran, which begins, the ridge slanted slightly from the earth. So if you get to, when you get to that part, that chapter, stop reading, because that's what we're reading to today. Okay? Okay. Okay. So, um, we're calling this part 
Valla Dolores. Oh, which, are we? Yeah, which if you remember, um, the the last part we did of of, of, a, of a Clash of Kings, the last book was Valla Morghulis. So, so is, it, is this? The, do you say Valla Dolores? Dolharis. Dolharis. I was going to say like Valla Morghulis means all men must die. So is Valla Dolores? All men must watch Sister Act at some point. <laughs> it isn't that. Could you, could you uh, hazard a guess as to something else? Um, all men must weep. Clo- it's it's all men must serve. Oh. Hmm. That's, so. that's less dramatic than all men must die. It's yeah, like that's, all men must die and all men must at some point get somebody else a cup of tea. Yes, yeah. I've, now next time somebody asks you for a brew, just go, very well. Follow Dolores, then go and make it, and they'll think you're, they'll think you're a freak. But you know, but you'll you'll smile inside. <laughs> and if I'm in the room, I'll smile too. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's get straight into it then. We, as with the first two books, we start off with pretty much a prologue from the point of view of a character that we haven't haven't seen before, uh, or at least we haven't been in this character's head before. It's that guy called Chet. Uh, now, this bloke, is serving on the Night's Watch, and if you remember, he used to be the steward for the maester at, at, at Castle Black, yeah. and he was um, he was kind of ousted by John to get Sam a job, so he's been pissed off ever since, because he's got a crap job looking after the dogs now. You wouldn't be happy, yeah. would you? You wouldn't. I mean, if there is such a thing as a cushy number when you're living in a frozen wasteland with a bunch of people who think that the height of manliness is to chop somebody's arm off. Um, you know, you, you'd be like, well, there are worse jobs than serving the wine. Yeah. And one yeah. of those jobs is cleaning out the dogs. Yeah. Now, as part of that, he's he's taken the dogs out with this big raiding party, which has gone, um, the ranging party, which has gone north of the wall. So there's basically him and these 300 other uh, members of the Night's Watch all sitting at the top of the fist of the first men. So, so they're waiting for the, this massive wildling army to arrive and make a, effectively make a final stand, it seems. Chet and a couple of the others aren't particularly keen on throwing their lives away in this manner. And there's this plot to, to kill uh, the old bear, um, Lord Mormont, the, so the Lord Commander, so the guy leading him, um, and then run away. It's not really an all-like mutiny. It's more a fact of these guys want to run away and they know they'll get chased unless they kill Mormont and a few of the other captains. So that's the way they're trying to do it. Um, What do you think of this plan? Uh, (laughs) It's not amongst the most inspired pieces of military thinking in the world, is it? Like, you're stuck in the middle of nowhere in an environment that nobody like even the hardest people in the entire history of your culture have said is really fucking scary and I don't want to go there and you're like so there's a few people not many but a few who've been here before and who really know how to handle themselves yeah I reckon I'll kill them yeah yeah that'll keep me safe <laughs> what <laughs> fucking well, I think numpty it's... He's killing them just so they won't chase chase him down. So he, I mean, he's thinking it's more the more chance taking the chances trying to get get back to the wall than waiting here for this attack, which they think no one's going to survive. Um, I mean, in terms of the actual greater wider thinking, it's just a bit of a cowardly move, isn't it? Um, the actual plan seems. I mean, it seems quite tight. He's been very careful who he's selected. Everyone seems quite um, reliable. 
Uh, there's this guy called Small Paul who seems a bit of a bit of a bit simple. <laughs> Was, wasn't there a DJ way back when called Tall Paul? <laughs> I think there might have been. Yeah. Can, so can you can you imagine like a, a sworn brother of the Night's Watch without without too much between his ears, just like throwing beats? Him and Grandmaster Picel. I'm telling you, there's a happy hardcore explosion waiting to happen in Westeros if only they had the equipment for it. Yeah. Well, the big joke about Small Paul, if you like, is that he's absolutely massive. Was oh, it's Tall a classic, Paul, like, isn't it? Yeah, was Tall Paul tiny? Was he like um, a little Well, we, we never met, so uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, it could have been. Though. I mean, this was this was rave culture, though, wasn't it? So it could have been that somebody was just absolutely hammered and yeah. just sort of looked at him and thought that he looked like a really tall something else entirely and was like, oh, he's tall. He's sitting yeah. down. Yeah, he's tall. Anyway, give me a hug. <laughs> yeah. Now this um uh th- this sort of plan has been put into action because Thorin Smallwood, who's the chief ranger, has come back to uh has been sort of out and about scouting around, and he's returned and said that he's seen that there's this massive wildling army is on the march now and it's coming towards them. So they've got to decide what to do, and there are basically three things that the Lord Commander can do and he hasn't decided which one yet one is to stay on this in this effectively sort of ruined fortress and try and hold what they've got there the other is to retreat and get back to the wall um, and fight the wildlings there and the other is to just go on the offensive and attack the wildlings on the march when they don't expect it Um, what did you think about the sort of decision here <laughs> um, well, you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, aren't you? Because, um, I mean, George Martin's been really smart here in that he hasn't really allowed us to see the extent of what the wildlings have got and what's mm. going on. And there's been this muttering about them, you know, are they are they trying to find some kind of weird magical super weapon buried under the ice? Um, and, and how many of them are there? We don't know. And what's the plan? We don't know any of that. Mm. Yeah. Just out there somewhere. Um and so you're really in the same position as as Lord Mormont, and you're like, oh, I haven't got a fucking clue what we should do. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, who can really say? You know, you stay, and there's 300 of you again in a well defended, if unfortunately named, position. Um, or you could go out ranging. You range, then you've lost all your strategy. You stay where you are. You're going to get overwhelmed anyway. Basically, they they are all going to die. Um, and um, yeah, I, don't, I I can't see. Can you? Can you see any any good well, decision to be made? It. I mean, Th- Thorin Small has been known as this hothead anyway. And he's obviously advocating taking the offensive, um, yeah. but th- there seems to be some kind of um, w- sort of wisdom in that. And the the Lord Commander, I think, eventually decides that's what they're going to do the next day. Mm. Um, and and the thinking behind it is. It's a massive force of wildlings, but the sort of the strength is grouped together in various bits, and right along this line, it's really ill-disciplined, and they're sort of very susceptible to a surprise attack. So, mm. you know, at, at worst, the, this sort of charge will, um, this surprise attack from the Night's Watch will do some damage before everybody's wiped out, and at best, mm. they might even have a slim chance of of sort of getting away as well. So. Yeah. I think that might be the sort of because I think you're right with the this as, as defendable as this sort of this this the fist of the first man is, you know it's it's going to be it's going to be it's probably going to be futile anyway because of the numbers. So 
it seems like there's probably the boldest, uh, the, the wisest course of action, rather unusually, is the boldest here. Um, and that's, yeah. what, that's what the Lord Commander decides to go for. Um, before that happens, I mean, Chet uh, and his guys are expecting to, to get away before that, so they think this... This is all. This is all moot. We're going to kill Mormons and get away before this all happens, anyway. But it's all scuppered because it starts to snow, and that pretty. Much, I mean, Chet actually starts crying then because it because he realizes this is, this ruins the whole plan. It's over. It means that, yeah, it means there'll be tracks in the fresh fresh snow. So there'll be tracks in the snow as they try to get away. It'll be harder to put the plan into place. They won't be able to see where they're going, and it's just they've no chance now. They had a slim chance before. They've no chance of getting away. Um, mm. And he thinks the one thing he still can do is kill Sam because he obviously has this massive grudge against him because he nicked his job. Yeah. And it's as he's ad- advancing on Sam with his dagger drawn that these three horns are blown. And what they what they do the re- the uh, the Night's Watch they blow one horn, uh, one sort of blow on the horn to say Rangers are coming back, two to say there's a wildling attack, and three they very rarely do, and it's because something else is coming out of the dark. Gasp. And, yeah, that's what happened. And Chet actually just pisses himself in front of Sam when, when the third <laughs> horn blows. But it's like it is. It yeah. is at that moment. It, it's told really well. Insofar as you do feel that, because like the first one blows, and then Sam sort of asks, "Oh, is it Rangers coming?" Back? Then the second one blows, and Chet's like, "Yeah, you're going to get a wildling axe in your head." And then the third one blows, and they're both sort of like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah." And you would be, wouldn't you? Because this is basically like having a system for telling you when there really are monsters under the bed. Yeah, it's that thing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, you know what do you do in that moment? Like everything just gets torn apart and thrown in the air. And what I think is interesting here is if I've if I've read the first two books properly, like mm. uh, this whole thing about the approach of the others is what these books are about. Yeah, um, they're the ice in the Song of Ice and Fire, right? And um, and so this moment where the others coming just. Put, to, puts everything into a shambles, into chaos, is exactly what's going to happen if and when the others actually go further south, past the wall and into Westeros, which is torn by war and petty power struggles and uh, rape and pillage and and uh, horrible behaviour. You know, it's going to go from somebody having their dagger drawn to somebody pissing themselves um, yeah. in an instant. You know, this. so this yeah. little interaction here, I think, is a really interesting little foreshadower of... Um, yeah. if, with any other author, I'd say an interesting foreshadow of what we can expect in the rest of this book. But frankly, I'm betting nothing. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all bets are off. Because George, uh, he's not averse to putting in a bit of foreshadowing in one book that isn't going to come true for another two or three volumes. Yeah. Now, now, at this point in the book, when this this chapter ends here, and the first time I read this, I was all sort of like, "No, no, do the do the do the whatever happens next," because. <laughs> Because and also because there's been a few times where we haven't seen a battle. Um, yeah, it sort of you get to this point and then you just get the aftermath. Yeah. And um, and I was thinking, oh, oh, please don't be like that. <laughs> and actually, in in the series, that's exactly what happens. Um, yeah. The the sort of there's this attack which begins at the end of series two mm. and is over by the start of series three. I suppose uh, to to save anyone else's distress here, um, there will be uh, a fairly vivid. Um, account of of what happens next later on so um so don't because i i raced through the next few chapters just waiting to find something about north of the wall so uh, you don't need to do that 
Uh, that's that's very public spirited of you, Matt. Because I was because like I'm I'm supposed to be I am reading along this book kind of one chunk at a time, and yeah. so it's so like man the urge I had to flick forwards from here was just <laughs> just almost uncontrollable. I was like no it's all right it's all right Matt I'll have a look that's fine yeah. <laughs> Okay, well let's let's zoom away from the wall at the worst possible moment then, um, <laughs> and you know just to sweeten the pill, it's it's an it's effectively it's a new. I mean, is a character familiar to us, but we've never actually been inside his head before. New POV character. It's Jamie, Jamie Lannister. Ding ding ding. New POV. There it's. <laughs> we, yeah, <laughs> you, you, we need we need an arcade game sound effect <laughs> for that sort of. <laughs> Yeah, so um, if you remember when we last left Jamie in the last book, um, we thought he might be killed because um, uh, Kate uh, Catelyn was advancing on him with a with a sword uh, while he was a prisoner. Yeah, it turns out he's been released. Um, she, Bit of a turn up, isn't it? She's, yeah, she's broken him out and sent her off with. Do you remember Brienne, this massive female knight? Mm. Um, sent them. Basically, there's him, Brienne, and this guy called Cleos, who's a one of Jamie's cousins, and he's uh, he's helping sort of. I think he's been the go-between so far, um, mm. when the Lannisters have been discussing terms with the Starks uh, yeah. for peace, and uh, he's going back as well with with Jamie. And the mm. big plan from Catelyn's point of view is to, to to give Jamie back to the Lannisters in the hope that they'll release Arya and Sansa, which is a spectacular gamble, and obviously it's been done without the. Without the sort of approval of of Rob as well, who's the king? This is some dangerous shit here. I mean, this is this is cutting away his biggest asset. Yeah. And for all that she's his mother, you know, you've got to think this is not going to go well. Yeah. Because what's he going to do? We've seen before that he's had to be very ruthless in dealing with in dealing with dissent. But this is his mum. Yeah. I think I mean this is it's madness, isn't it, to send yeah. to send such a valuable prisoner away. The only defence you can have for Catelyn is that it's sort of the night that she's just heard that Bran and Rickon have been killed, mm-hmm. and it's just this sort of it's more sort of through her grief than anything else. Yeah, yeah. That she yeah. just des- makes some this desperate move to get at least one of her children or two of her children back. But yeah. in terms of sort of the cold light of day, she must at some point later on realise that this is a dreadful move I hope so but you know she's been really put through the ringer and we've seen her her kind of emotional state start to degrade so mm. you know what I mean like is this gonna you know I, I think she's mental I think she's really lost it doing this I can't see I can't see what the upside is of it yeah um, but maybe she's smarter than I think she is we'll see um, just a, a quick bit about Cleos Frey um, mm. Let me just bring up the description. I mean, Jamie isn't for for a relative. Jamie isn't particularly impressed with him. Um, his 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 description of Sicleos Ray is: Sicleos looked like a weasel, fought like a goose, and had the courage of an especially brave ewe, which is a, if you don't know, is a female sheep. Um, so, so yeah, he's not exactly the the kind of guy you you want to have watching your back. Oh, oh, he seems nice, isn't it? Yeah, he seems <laughs> yeah. all right. Although, is this like the the awesome deadening power of the surname Frey to make anybody who has it just sort of wishy-washy, <laughs> spiteful, either spiteful and and uh, and kind of prickly, 
or um, easily cowed and bitter. And either way, about as much fun as being hit in the face with a wet fish. Yeah, like that's that's like it's the magical name. I've not we've not come across a single Frey who doesn't somehow fit that description, have we? Yeah, and it's also I think uh, as much uh, as much as it is a reference to Cleos, it's a, also a um, just another signpost to what Jamie's like. In that, yeah. you know, he he does look down on any you know he has quite a high bar for bravery and things like that, and yeah. he won't see anything other than a, a you know a, a willing disregard to throw your life away to charge into the the, the you know throng of an enemy um, <laughs> would be the, the only, only way he'd think of anyone yeah but even then world. he'd only really be impressed if it was somebody who happened to be born to the right family and have the right amount of money like of he course, is an, yeah. a, he is an awful snob not just of people's behavior but of people's origins yeah um, that's true and yeah. the worst bit of it is he's so well written because he's quite funny with it and yeah. so you read these, like, there's a lot of times when you read what Jamie has to say about somebody and you're like, you're a cock, but that's really funny. It's like, it's, it's so, so is there an appropriate parallel, do you think, to be drawn between Jamie Lannister and Jimmy Carr? <laughs> well, in terms of sort of martial ability, I'd be very surprised if that, anyway. <laughs> oh, you, yeah. you don't even know, man. Jimmy Carr, he's vicious with a broadsword. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, something else interesting about Jamie, uh, the, he he gets Sicleos to to shave his head because to, mm. to, to sort of to, to make it harder to distinguish who he is mm. because people are looking for, because there'll be people searching for for Jamie and they'll be looking for this dashing knight with golden locks. So he's this now bearded sort of haggard looking guy who's bald and it's just worth bearing in, that in mind. They don't do this in the series because it'll look too weird, but um, for the rest of at least. The sort of for the near future, Jamie's completely bald now. Bit weird. It's Still there. yeah, no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> There's nothing to say about that. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> yes, he is. He is bald. He is bald. Um, well, you know, as a member of the bald fraternity myself, I'm not about to start throwing stones at somebody for uh, choo- choosing to go hairless. Welcome to the Brotherhood, Jamie. <laughs> okay, so uh, they're. they're <laughs> T- team, team Jamie with Brienne and um, Brienne and Zaclias are sailing down the river now, um, mm. on the way away from Riverrun, and they see this, this, these hanged, these women who've been hanged, and they're uh, sort of the bodies are still twisting in the breeze, if you like, um, and it's because they lay with Lannisters. It's another example of how there are no particularly nice people in this war, the Starks and yeah. uh, uh, and the Tully. I think this might be the Tullys who've done this. Um, yeah. Are you know just as ruthless in places uh, uh, Brienne decides to to sort of detour to the land to the sort of riverside to cut these people down to cut these bodies down and Jamie really quite can't quite believe what he's seeing because it just seems such a, a pointless exercise especially when they're on the run and they're trying to get away and I, I'd probably come down on his side with this what do you about you? Yeah no I agree with that like He's a knob, but I'm not about to argue with his uh, with his tactical sense. Hmm. Brienne also mentions that she was one of uh, King Renly's Rainbow Guard. Um, we, we get a Sorry, feel for the fabulous uh, Rainbow Guard. You mean the fabulous Rainbow? Well, that's why I was mentioning it because Jamie laughs at it because um, yeah. <laughs> he, he he thinks the very idea of uh, the phrase Rainbow Guard is hilarious, and I think it's a. Uh, 
It's quite funny because that's pretty much the reaction we had, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they sounded like badasses, and I'm not certain I would have wanted to fight any of them. But there was just something so wonderful in being like, ah, they need to be in different colours so they'll accessorise with me. <laughs> just the whole yeah. idea of like an interior-designed fighting force. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, uh, it was, <laughs> it's quite funny. Now, the, the, they're nearly caught because uh, this guy called Robin Ryger, who's uh, one of the sort of high-up people at Riverham, has been sent after Jamie to bring him back. And he, he turns up in this really large ship, which he's obviously going to outrun Brienne and Jamie. And you think that he's going to get caught. Um, it's a bit weird because Robin Ryger wants to take Jamie alive. Jamie just sort of says let's have a fight single combat and but Jamie basically wants to make a stand and get killed here mm. um, he's not really afraid of death um, Robin Ryger wants to bring him in alive obviously because he's so valuable mm. but um, one of the ways they try to do that is they keep firing these volleys of arrows towards the boat and I'm just thinking that's if the one surefire way of killing your prize is going to be firing loads <laughs> of arrows at him because yeah. a couple of hours seem like almost go right past his head. Yeah, I'm just thinking, what is what is he doing? <laughs> well, it's like the idea of a warning shot being fired with a with a shotgun, isn't it? It's like once you pull the trigger, <laughs> you really don't have any control over those little ball bearings. Yeah, like you, I mean, maybe everybody on board the ship is like a master archer, but I doubt it. Well, consider it, considering how bad that they are at actually hitting anything. If you're trying <laughs> to wound somebody, they're not getting anywhere near anyone. Yeah. Um, Yes, oh, I mean, I, well, maybe he knows that. Maybe he's like, these lads are so bad, I know for certain the last <laughs> thing they're going to do is hit where I'm telling him to hit. So, yeah, you go ahead, boys, you shoot him. <laughs> yeah. I just wonder what the reaction would have been at River Run if Robin Ryger turns up with a, a feathered Jamie Lannister who's got all <laughs> arrows, or, or just one, one unlucky arrow as he's hitting well, yeah, somewhere. in the eye, That's for example. That's all it takes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyway, in any event, he doesn't catch him because Brienne does this rather... Um, very you know, very cunning, a very quick thinking plan. She gets out onto the riverside, climbs up a small sort of crevice, um, or small well, little sort of hill really, and then pushes a rock onto the uh, onto the pursuing ship, effectively mm. sort of ruining it. Well, just you know, almost I think she almost sort of sinks it, yeah. and um, and they they get away. Mm. And Robin Rag is going to have to have a long sort of. I think Jamie considers it's going to be a long, wet walk back to a. Uh, <laughs> to, to River Run, <laughs> but uh, I thought at this point, this I thought when Brienne did this, this is this really is now sort of crossing the line. She's a, mm. she's attacked and killed a couple of members of the, the sort of Tully army as well. Mm. Uh, so there's there's going to be no sort of quarter given now when she's trying to get away with Jamie. Absolutely, I mean, if there even was going to be one before, maybe and that's true. Yeah, yeah. But well, I mean, but either way, I find it really interesting because this is this kind of shows how like even though warfare seems to be shaped by all of these like massive grand alliances, and I'm with you, and he's with you, and I've got these banner men, and we're going to get this particular lord to come over to our side, and all of that sort of thing. Actually, in the moment, it doesn't matter because like in terms of allegiances, she's employed by and sworn to um, Caitlin, who is a daughter of Riverrun, but here she is yeah. fighting Riverrun soldiers without a second thought, like just on the spur of the moment. Clearly they've yeah. all got to die. Um, and it's just, it's all about expedience, isn't it? It's all about who's standing between you and where you need to go, holding a sword. 
Yeah. And, 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 and there's just such potential for chaos in the way that war is fought in this place. And mm. you can't, you know, it's not going to get any easier than this, is it? You know, it's only going to get more complicated. Yeah. And the, the way, um, the, the other thing about this, the very last bit I wanted to speak about was Brienne jumps back into the water and swims over to the boat. And Jamie thinks of sort of just whacking her with the oar to keep her out and then he can get away. And mm. in the end, he, he lets her back on the boat and he's not really sure himself why, why he does it. Maybe, just, maybe it's just a bit of, bit of built-in gratitude for the fact that she's, she has just saved his life. Yeah, and he seems almost almost bemused by it, doesn't it? Like he yeah. go, he kind of does this thing which is fundamentally honourable, and then he's like, sort of, oh, why the fuck did I do that? Like you're an odd one, Lannister, and no mistake. Anyway, moving on, <laughs> he has he has a very strange response to his own responses, which he seems to be like not terribly curious and not interested at all in doing the right thing, but occasionally he will do the right thing and be like, well, how about that? I'm not mm. a total bastard. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, let's move on to Catelyn, uh, the next chapter. Catelyn, mm. unsurprisingly, is in the naughty corner. Um, she's, been, <laughs> she, she, she's been confined to some fairly luxurious quarters. They, they're not really sure what to do with her, are they? Because mm. they're, these, they're these sort of people who they've seen her grow up from a little girl and all their lives they've been looking after her. Mm. And she's still, you know, the mother of the king. Mm. Um, but she's just done something which ridiculous um, and ter- and terrible from their strategic point of view. Mm. So they've got to do something. So they kind of just put it to one side and just waiting for Rob or Edmure to deal with her when they get back. Mm. Um, so Catelyn Ka- spends a lot of time with her, her father, who's obviously he's still in this coma and he looks like he's dying. And he, he's raving about someone called Tansy or something called Tansy. Mm. And and she's trying to work out what that is. And I think eventually the, the, we're supposed to be led to believe that it, it might be something to do with a pet name for Lysa, you know, Catelyn's sister who's over in the Eyrie. And mm. she's got that weird little kid. And it's, um, it's mental. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's along the lines of maybe she had a, had a son or a daughter which something went wrong. And uh, I don't know. It just seems to be... It's not really explained very much, but there seems to be a a funny bit of backstory there which we've not been privy to. Mm, and I, I kind of wondered why why we go in that direction because you know we haven't seen Liza for a book and a half now, mm. and um, uh, while it's interesting to have a better sense of this John Aaron situation because he died before the start of the first book, mm. um, it's still like why is this intriguing? But yeah. again, I'm just really happy to let it sit there and be a little nugget of story that will come to matter because because the Vale of Arryn has been like almost suspiciously silent in this war, hasn't it? Yeah. You know, there is quite wealthy and can clearly call um, quite a lot of of um, bannermen and so on. But they just basically put they they've just drawn the curtain shut and put a sign on the door saying no one home. Um, so yeah. while this war's going on in the rest of the country, they're just sitting at the end of their valley going, nope, not us. No siree. No, no, yeah. no. Yeah, very um, strange. So hopefully that means they're going to get drawn back into it, because otherwise why bother with all this backstory? Yeah, I mean, the other thing is it could just be... Um, it's, just, it's just giving... It's just fleshing out a bit, a, a bit, of, the, a bit of the world that we haven't seen insofar as mm. the, the, this relationship between Catelyn and Lysa and her father and John Arryn, and it just gives a bit more... Um, 
just a bit more detail to what had happened there and and there might be some greater significance later on or maybe it's just sitting there as a as just a bit of extra color for the world but either way it seems it's okay you know i don't yeah, yeah, feel yeah. particularly bored going through it yeah. um edmure returns uh and he is quite cold with catelyn although he mm. again he, he isn't exactly throwing the black cells kind of angry but he's not happy um, yeah have we seen edmure happy at any point no, I suppose not. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he has a great time when he's off whoring, um, which he seems to do <laughs> quite a lot. To, yeah, yeah. And oh, he, you know, he was, he was, he was loving it when he, um, when he, he won that battle at the Fords. Um, he threw back the, uh, generally threw back oh, the Lannisters. Oh yeah, so yeah, he, he was, had, he was you know, loving it. Yeah, and he, he, rightly so. I mean, that was a pretty badass moment for him. Yeah. Um, he brings news this time that Stannis has, has lost that battle at King's Landing, which is obviously. Bad news for um, bad news for, for everybody. Um, everybody, everybody, yeah, especially the Starks. <laughs> um, there's also this news that Catelyn hears a bit earlier on. It's before Edmure gets back um, about Rob. Um, he's continuing to to take lands in in the Lannister heartlands, if you like, and mm. he's they've taken this place called the Crag, mm. and um, but he's been wounded during the assault, so he's been he sort of led the assault, mm. and it seems he's taken an arrow. And he's a. Uh, I don't think it's an arrow to the knee, um, but it's a. Do, do you get <laughs> that? Is, no. There's this that? thing. It's this. I think it's this gaming thing where. Um, there's a, <laughs> have you ever played Skyrim? This is um, really. This is going off on a tangent. No, 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 no. But you've made a reference now, and I must understand. Um, so, I've seen. I've I've played with Skyrim for about five minutes. <laughs> so there's this fantasy game called Skyrim, which you, like, you sort of wander through this big fantasy world and speak to all these different characters. And one of uh, there are these guards um, who obviously have like a lot of stock phrases which they say to you. And mm. um, and one of them is uh, <laughs> the guard says, "I used to be an adventurer like you, and then I took an arrow to the knee." And it's just become this sort of thing where everybody always says, and then I took an arrow to the knee, and it's just turned into one of those long-running internet jokes. Um, Excellent. Anyway. Excellent. Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, nobody's taken an arrow to the knee. No. Thank um, God. No, but but Rob, Rob's obviously been wounded. Not seriously, it seems, but um, he's recovering now. And mm. it just shows that, you know, he, for all his battles that he's won, he's not invincible, and um, he... You know he is vulnerable in the same way anybody else would be in a in a in a war, or mm. I suppose to a lesser degree because he's got much more protection as the king. Mm. Um, okay, that's I mean that's all I wanted. To st- anything else he wants to say on Catelyn? Um, no, just to say who the hell knows what's going to happen next. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that the next big thing would be when Rob actually finally returns and how he's going to deal with Catelyn. Yeah. He's been off and for a while though, Jamie. hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he, we haven't we haven't seen Rob for half a book. Yeah, just more than run, that, maybe. running a mock in Lannister lands, isn't it? Yeah, he's just he's having the best gap year any young man ever had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, next up is Arya. A pretty short chapter. Arya's on the run now uh, mm. from uh, from Her- Hall after she escaped with Gendry and Hot Pie. Mm. Um, she's worried about someone called Steelshanks Walton. Chasing after him, he's sort of the captain of the guard. Another one of the Bolton sort of a classic Bolton guy, isn't he? Oh, I think he's, he's, his nickname Steelshanks for the sort of greaves he has on, like the the sort of armor he wears. Um, Excellent, which is quite cool. Technical yeah. use of the word greaves there. I'm not certain I would have known how to just just <laughs> whack that out in casual conversation. I like it. Um, yeah, Steelshanks though. 
What a name. Steel Shanks yeah. Walton. Doesn't that sound to you like the name of a terrifying PE teacher in a sort of 1950s school drama? Like, like <laughs> kind of like Kess the early years surely yeah. has a uh, has a, a PE teacher called Steel Shanks Walton. Lost one of his legs in the war, but still teaches rugby like a bastard. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I thought um, the only the, the reference point I got from it is uh, I think one of the one of the early kings, one of the medieval kings of England. I think it was I think it was Edward the First. Oh, I yeah, Edward or Richard the First. I think Edward the First was nicknamed Longshanks. Oh, he was. Yeah, the it was guy Edward was the First putting down the, the Scots. Yeah. And so I, I just just gave me an extra impression of just utter ruthlessness when I heard yeah. that word. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, that's the only reference point I could get. But I think yeah, I think it's a badass name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, he's one of the Bolton men. And the last time we saw them doing anything, it was burning Winterfell to the ground. So you're like, oh no, he's a badass, and he's a Bolton. This is not going to go well. Yeah. Again, it, it's it's. I'm still not convinced about this. You know, oh, how we have you, we have a conflicting between... viewpoint on this. I fair you've enough. Got two fair Boltons. Enough. Yeah. yeah, but um, you've got the bastard yeah. of Bolton and you've got Roose Bolton, and it was the bastard of Bolton who is just yeah. an unhinged psycho. Fair enough. I think we. I think. I think. Regardless, we cannot. We can agree that the Boltons have have got a, a hard won reputation for utter ruthlessness now. So you wouldn't <laughs> think I is going to be treated particularly well if she's caught. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now she's she's one. I mean, there's one little bit in this chapter. She's on her horse, sort of riding along, and she goes past these hanged villages, just villages hanging from trees, and. Um, and there's, it's like I think it's an apple tree, and there's all these rotten apples around it as well. And she barely sort of looks at the villages and sort of plucks one of these rotten apples from the tree and eats it, worms and all. And mm. it just, I just thought it was a really, a really strong image of just how kind of damaged she is now, but also how just there's 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 sort of one part damaged, but it's also utterly resilient to this kind of thing now. And she yeah. barely sees this kind of stuff anymore. Yeah, and and mind you. Age nine still. Yeah. Um, I become more and more nervous about Arya because I really like the character of Arya, but it is like, how how Bride of Chucky is this going to go? You know, because <laughs> she started slitting people's throats and muttering weird languages at them when she does it. And yeah. and now she's, you know, not, she's, you know, reaching around hanging corpses. Excuse me. Thank you very much. Take an apple. Pluck it down. There we go. Rest in peace, you know, yeah. without a second thought. Oh, it's frightening, and I kind of don't want it to go that way, you know? Yeah. They're trying to get to Riverrun, and they're not exactly moving particularly quickly because it's three kids. Mm. But um, And you think, surely they're going to get caught, but somehow they don't. And at the end of the chapter, you kind of find out why. And it's because of you know, this massive wolf pack that's been running around the Riverlands. Yeah. Well, um, she goes into the mind of one of them, I think. So it gives you the what? impression... It, it, did you not get this bit at the end? I did get that bit at all. Fuck. I need to read more carefully. Because well, I've, I've been on the lookout for that stuff ever since John had his dream where he was kind of in a wolf as well. I was like, oh shit, all the Stark kids can do this. Wicked. Well, that's what, that, that's what I think. Because he has this dream where mm. um, she's, she's running around as a wolf and she, she, like, she hunts these, this, the, this group of men um, and her and her, her pack fall on them and kill them. And I think this is... I think this is really happening. I think it's a similar thing to Bran and John, and that it's her lost wolf, which has been running amok in the Riverlands, and has basically taken out this search party that's gone after Arya. Um, so that's yeah. why that's why they've got away because um, they're pursuing 
group has been killed by these wolves and it's interesting there's one um in this group there's one sort of fighter which stands his ground and it's this guy with a, a long curved sword and bells in his hair and it just seems like it's one of the dothraki which has come over you know so it must be like one guy who's somehow ended up in westeros and he's attached himself to to this yeah. group i just yeah. thought that was quite interesting it's a nice little connection with something which a group of people that have been half a world away and yeah. we've not really had any co- uh, connection between the two before. I'm a massive fan of anything like that. I really am. Mm. The, the more links there are between all this stuff that happens on the other side of the world and Westeros, the better mm. for me because the, clearly the plot's not going to go anywhere until they're all in the same place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we, we're back with Tyrion next. And he's speaking with Bronn, who's now become Bronn of the Blackwater. He's been knighted. Mm. And he's talking about how he's got his expensive tastes. And two things. One, you feel that Tyrion might struggle to hold... I mean, Bronn's pretty much all he's got left, we find out. You know, mm. Jacqueline, By- Jacqueline Bywater, who was the commander of the City Watch, put in place by Tyrion, um, has, was killed in the mut- it was killed in that mutiny. Do you remember there was a mutiny because Joffrey left in the middle of the battle? Because yeah. his mum gave him a, a, you know, get out of school card or sick note or whatever. Um, well, the sick, all, wouldn't you love it if Joffrey became known as the sick note king? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah. But when that happened, the City Watch started to mutiny. Jacqueline Bywater commanded them to, you know, continue to do what they're supposed to do. And mm. they killed him. Um, it turns out the mountain clans who fought for him, they've either gone of their own accord because they want to carry on. I mean, I think one group of them quite likes the Kingswood, so they've stayed there. Another <laughs> group came back and were driven away from the city and, and forced mm. to leave, which pisses off Tyrion because he, th- he thinks, you know, these are the people who, who died to keep you guys safe and they've been mm. treated dreadfully. Yeah. Um, and this Aliyah character, you know, who was being held by Cersei, she's been oh, whipped yeah. in the streets. Oh. Um and the reason they've done that is because they've managed to get Tommen back, yeah. uh, who, who Tyrion had as leverage. Basically, all of Tyrion's carefully managed um, things that have put him in power mm. have, been, have been very carefully taken away one by one. Yeah. And the one thing he's got left is really Bronn. And mm. Bronn, again, he's been knighted and doesn't need Tyrion as much anymore. Mm. And you just wonder where that relationship's going to go. Because they're obviously fond of each other. Mm. But Bronn at his heart is a sellsword and a businessman, yeah. if you like. Well, so, utterly ruthless bastard is what he really yeah. is. You know, he'll do whatever as long as the money's right. Yeah. And something that struck me here, he, he, he's knighted because of what he did on the Blackwater. And in the series, you do see him in the thick of things fighting. In the mm. book, it, he's conspicuous by his absence, really. I'm sure he is fighting somewhere, but you don't really see him, do you? Which I thought was quite strange. Actually, you're absolutely right. There's just we don't. He's just we just assume he's out there somewhere. Yeah, because in the series he's the guy who fires an arrow and yeah. basically starts the whole um, wildfire on the on the river. Oh, so it Jember. is. Yeah. Um, well, okay. That's a good moment. But I actually prefer in the book having this fuck knuckle that can't steer a boat properly ramming yeah, yeah. his boat full <laughs> of wildfire and letting off a nuclear explosion. Yeah. <laughs> But I just thought it was strange that, um, and I, mm. maybe that's something they came to in this series and thought we can't give him, you know, he's such a good character. We should have him in the thick of it. So oh, I also I suspect it's because it's just really difficult to show to have people look at a, look at boats moving and really understand what it is they're doing. You know, yeah. you can have in a book, you can have it all explained by Sir Davos, who's a real expert seaman, going, "Don't do that. 
don't do that. Don't fucking go there. Oh, you fucking went there. Whereas in the TV series, you know, you can't, you can't really play it that way, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, Tyrion goes and meets his father. Um, he's finally well enough just about to get out of bed and goes to see his dad. And yeah. uh, Now, I, I want to do another comparison with the series a little bit here because this, um, I felt this was less, a bit more believable and less cold than it was in the series. In the series, basically, Tywin hasn't visited Tyrion cause he, basically because he's disgusted by him. And... Um, and won't give him any credit or very little credit for the for the for saving the city, and um, then tells tells Tyrion that he's not going to he's never going to get his hands on Casterly Rock. It kind of goes the same way in the book, but mm. there are a couple of things that Tywin says. For one, he says that he did visit Tyrion when he was at his worst, but when it got to the stage where he was through the worst of it and was going to survive, didn't you know he had he had other things to do, which is. Mm. Not particularly nice, but not as bad as saying I didn't want to see you. Um, mm. And also, this whole thing about how much credit Tyrion's got for the defense of the city. Mm. Um, it, he's basically only getting the credit for the you know that big chain that he put up across the bay. So the big thing, like the wildfire, has been credited to Cersei because she had the original idea of using wildfire, and somehow I'm sure in the in the you know in the few days or weeks or whatever that that Tyrion's been out of action Cersei's taking credit for the rest of it as well yeah. and and everybody's saying that the, the big the big thing that changed the battle was Tywin's arrival and that's kind of easier to see in, this, in the books because even though there's the big wildfire stuff and the, and the ships all go down for Sustanis he's still going to win the battle until Tywin turns up isn't he mm. for all for all Tyrion's heroics mm. he's, he's kind of fighting a lost cause till this relief army arrives yeah. so I just I just thought that in the series, it seemed that Tyrion had almost single-handedly saved the city and then was cast aside. And mm. in the book, it was just a bit more complicated. Yeah, that's very true. And as always, complicated is better, I think, in books like this. makes it more realistic, and, and I liked it a lot. But that didn't mean I wasn't infuriated with it, because you've seen Tyrion come from nowhere with the support of nobody, nothing but money, and his father's grudging acceptance that he's a legitimate Lannister. That's all yeah. he's ever had in the world. Yeah. And uh, and really make something out of it, and he and right now he is exactly where he was at the start of the last book, or actually worse off because he's not the hand of the king. At the start of the last book, you know, you saw him have this conversation with um, Janos Slint, um, and uh, and it was great because from there you just saw him build this massive power base, and you were like, yeah, go on, son, go on, have it, and <laughs> and and you know all that satisfaction over a whole book, you just it's just drained away, and he's worse off than he was when he started. Yeah, yeah. And this whole thing about Tyrion asks for Casterly Rock because he basically says Jamie gave up his claim to our seat, which is you know the Lannisters, you know, the Lannisters capital if you like Casterly Rock. Mm. Um when he took when he became a king's member of the King's Guard, so I should I should get it after you. Mm. And Tywin is furious at the very idea because of this view he has one because his son's a dwarf and two mm. because of the the view he has of of Tyrion and and how fond he is of whores, yeah. And 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 Tywin. I don't know if we've, we've had, had this backstory yet, but there's a backstory with Tywin about how he what happened with his father, which has made him, you know, the one thing he he hates more than anything else is is, is prostitution, bizarrely. Yeah. yeah. Of all the places to take your moral stand, and it's not a terribly moral stand, is it? It's, it's the same sort of moral stand that says, um, "I hate murder, so I'm going to kill people." Um, you know, uh, he hates prostitution, so he's going to have them killed. 
Yeah. Or um, whipped. It sounds like he was behind the Elijah yeah, whipping as well. Of course he was. Of course he was. Yet another Lannister home run. Hmm. Uh, next up is Davos. Very short chapter. He's. I mean, the, the biggest thing about this is Davos is still alive. I assumed he was go- he, he was gone when uh, <laughs> when his ship blew up on the Blackwater. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's a lot of resurrecting in this book, isn't there? Because we thought Jamie was dead. Yeah. Uh, we thought Tyrion was dead for a time until, mm. but he kind of came back at the very end of uh, of Clash of Kings. Um, and we thought Davos was dead, and he's back. Mm. He's basically clinging to this little rock of an island just off the bay of the Blackwater. And uh, thinking of the scale of his loss, I mean, four of his sons have been killed in this in this attack, mm. and he basically wants to die. Mm. He's waiting to die, and then he's he's in this he's having these sort of fever dreams, and he he appears to be spoken to by the the seven gods. You know, he, he still worships the seven gods, mm. and they almost whisper in his ear, "You burned us," referring to what happened on Dragonstone, yeah. and he comes with the, um, sort of during this time he comes round to decide that he does have a mission still and this mm. is to make amends for that for what he did or for what he allowed to happen and he wants to assassinate the red woman Melisandre well y- you have to say you're alongside him in that aim aren't you <laughs> well yeah and he um he he gets rescued by a ship eventually and he's just kind of lucky isn't he that it's a Stannis ship and not a and not a King's Landing ship. Yeah, that oh, there's that, that great moment, isn't there, where um, mm-hmm. where he's like, they're like, whose man are you? And he goes, oh, fuck it. Stannis! And he's almost <laughs> like, he's almost cringing, and then they're like, good. <laughs> Long pause. Yeah. Yeah, so are it- we. <laughs> Yeah, because it's like at first they just say "Who's my you?" and he just goes, "I serve the king." I thought, I thought, good answer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but then they say "Which king?" and he goes, "Shit." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, that's that's a Baldrick level cunning plan, isn't it? It's like <laughs> I have a cunning plan. I serve the king. I'm not going to tell you which one though. You go first. <laughs> yeah, I'd love it if it had gone same one as you. Same yeah. one as you, yeah. Same one as you, obviously. <laughs> the only, the only legitimate king, of course. <laughs> I'll try to do that kind of thing that psychics do, where he goes, "I'm getting the word," and just just try to read it. Oh, that's magnificent! You're you king, king, Yeah. Okay. That's all we do. I think that's all we need to, to, to say about Davos. He, he's, so he is rescued. Mm. He's on his way back to Dragonstone. Um, Sansa is next. We're getting a real run around all the different POV coaches, aren't we? Um, mm-hmm. So we're just checking in with every one of them. She uh, meets the Tyrells. So the Tyrells are these this family that are really rising high now after being the main part of the release, uh, relief force which saved the city mm. of King's Landing. Um, she, she, she gets sort of escorted to the Tyrell's sort of chambers by Sir Loras, you know, this this handsome young knight who has now taken the white, hasn't he? He's become a member of the Kingsguard, yeah. I think at 16. And yeah. um, Sansa, obviously, there's this subtext that Loras and King and, the, and Rendley were, were gay and gay lovers. And um, we get another little sort of signpost for that here where Sansa mentions Robar Royce, who was killed... Um, basically, Ren, uh, 
Loris killed this guy, Robo Royce, in sort of his anger and his grief when Renly mm. died. And it immediately makes Loris really distant um, when Sansa brings this up. And it's mm. kind of from, from Sansa imagines it's because she's bringing up this death of this, of Robo Royce, who was a good, you know, one of his friends. Mm. And the way you can read it with sort of what Lor- what uh, what Loris says, I think it's more about his memories of Renly and what happened, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's clearly grieving, and and it's, I mean, it's really, it's quite touching, really. Mm-hmm. Like, um, for such a young guy to be like, to have been so in love, mm-hmm. he's he's quite like it's quite striking. I, I tell you what made me think though, right? I hadn't realised, or maybe I just hadn't put two and two together. Loris is not the oldest, um, the oldest. Tyrell's son is he by a, by a long stretch? No, and this is different to the series. In the series, he's the only son. He's the, yeah. He's and um, and that's used as a bargaining chip. Uh, no, so so you've got three sons uh, for the Tyrells. You've got Mace Tyrell, who's the who's the, the lord, and mm. then he's got three sons. So there's I think Sir Garlan, who's the eldest, mm. um, and then you've got Sir Sir Willis, who's the um, who. Oh no, 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 Sir Willis is the eldest, and he's the guy who's he's he's been left at Highgarden. Mm. Uh, uh, back, back home because he's uh, he he's not got the use of his legs anymore. I think he he was uh, he he, oh. lost, he lost one or he he was injured really badly in a tournament. Mm. Um, so there's him. Then there's Sagalan, who's the second oldest, this big, strong, gallant knight. And then there's Soloris, who's the youngest. Mm. Um, which sorry, go on. All of which makes me think. In the TV series, it made a lot of sense that Renly's main power base came from Loras because he he was sleeping with Loras. And Loras has pull over over House Tyrell and just says, "Right, all of our soldiers are going here." Um, mm. I, I wonder. I wonder why the Tyrells in the book did this because yeah. there's, surely there's more mileage in getting alongside the Lannisters much earlier on than you did. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, maybe they just it was just yes, yeah, the sort of crazy part immediately after the uh, immediately after the the, the sort of all the, all those things changing and. and or immediately after the death of Robert, you got to pick somebody, and they'd rather they, they, they see there's more to gain from sticking Renly on it. I suppose when they back Renly, um, they back him alongside so many other knights in this area that that he has the biggest army, doesn't he? He, he at the very start of a Clash of Kings, the, the 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 person sort of if you were the bookie's favorite, if you like, would be Renly in terms of the size of his army, mm. and and it's normally. You know the size of the army that wins the day, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting. You're probably right insofar as if the Tyrells had gone to the side of the Lannisters, the Lannisters would have had the biggest army. So they were almost yeah. the kingmakers, weren't they? And yeah. for whatever reason, maybe because they have more influence over Renly, they chose Renly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very true. Very true. Um. So we're introduced to the the mother of of the Lord of High of Mace throughout Lord of Highgarden. Um. The Queen of Thorns. What um, a winner this woman is! <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, she's she's one of these great old people who just says what she thinks and uh-huh. doesn't care. And uh-huh. it's, it's great to have someone like that in this in this sort of context where the book's all about people being very careful what they say all the time. Yeah. Every word can mean something, and the Queen of Thorns just doesn't give a shit. She just says what she <laughs> likes. <laughs> oh, she's so great. She's the um, 
Uh, Terry Pratchett used the phrase once in one of his books, um, a type one feisty old lady who's been around <laughs> for long enough not to give two shits what anybody thinks of her or what she says and actually <laughs> takes a great deal of joy in like cutting through everybody's pretense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I just think it's, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. I flipping loved it. And in the TV series, it's um, it's the it's, uh, she's it's Diana Rigg, isn't it? Grand old lady yeah. in British TV, yeah. and she must just have an absolute ball playing this character. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, there are two ways this goes when you have a, an old person who just says what they think and damn everybody else. Mm. And one is that they're sort of the embarrassing older person who no one really listens to and they just sort of try and push off to one side. Mm. Or you have the, someone like the Queen of Thorns where she's so, she's also, she does say what she thinks all the time, but she's also so sh- sharp and shrewd mm. and, um, and canny that everybody listens to her. And, and you do come across these people in, in, in real life where they, you know, a lot older than you and then they sort of, they're very, they're very harsh with it almost, or just sort of, mm. you feel, you, you immediately feel the need to impress them, yeah. and they almost sit back and say, impress me. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. they carry that kind of gravity, don't they? And she's a really, really great example of one of those kind of characters. Yeah, very much, very, very much she's like that. Um, so, yeah, one of those rare characters who manages to sort of get m- more magnificent in old age, if you like. Hmm. And uh, and she, she sort of challenges Sansa to impress her. I'm not sure Sansa does quite manage to. She, at one <laughs> point, comes out and says that, the, you know, the rumour is that you're quite slow-witted. <laughs> Sansa, <laughs> and Sansa just doesn't know what to say to it. Um, <laughs> and you'd have loved it, wouldn't you? If she's like, the rumour is you're quite slow-witted. Sansa does not know what to say. The Queen of Thorns <laughs> allowed a silence to grow and then went, Mm. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> there's a bit. There's a great bit in this series where she's talking to Varys and uh, the Queen of Thorns, and uh, Varys says, "You're taking a lot of interest in in Sansa," and and the Queen of Thorns says, "Well, oh, she's an interesting girl." And Varys says, "Is she?" And the Queen of Thorns says, "No, not really." <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that 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 exchange is great as well, isn't it? Because it's it's like. It's the two cattiest characters in the entire TV series being extremely yeah. catty together. Is <laughs> yeah. she? No. <laughs> um, what she does get out of Sansa um, is the truth about Joffrey. She basically has got Sansa down here to find out what Joffrey's really like, to effectively warn Marjorie. Marjorie's here as well, who's the, mm. the girl who's going to be marrying Joffrey. Um, <laughs> in order to, to speak quietly without anybody overhearing, she gets the the jester Butterbumps to just <laughs> sing a really loud song. Um, what a song weird. it is as well. Is it the Bear and the Maiden Fair, isn't the it? The Bear and the Maiden Fair. That, oh, man, it just, it, it just, for some reason, it really made me laugh. Just the fact <laughs> that it was all rendered in all capital letters with exclamation marks, and it just keeps repeating, <laughs> The Bear! The Bear! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, um, I'm exactly but, the sort of audience that a medieval jester would have wanted for his subpar witticisms. Just, <laughs> just repeat a bear, I'll be happy. And there's the other thing that she she uses this co- this this song as cover for is to to tell Sansa that there's this marriage on the cards. She's going to send Sansa off to Highgarden to marry this Sir Willis guy, who's the the heir to, to Highgarden. Mm. Um, and this is a great way out for Sansa isn't it um, yeah. she gets away from King's Landing and she gets to marry you know she gets to sort of live that kind of dream I suppose which Be a lady. she always wanted yeah yeah possible good news for Sansa we shall see 
we shall. Okay, it's time to go to John then, because we've not heard from him yet. Um, he's obviously part of the Wildling group now, effectively a captive, although he's, he's tried to change sides, because he's, he's now going to be a spy. Mm. Um, they're going towards... I mean, they, they, they get back to the main camp, and uh, the, the camp's pretty disorganised, the Wildling camp, and John... John thinks, I mean, we, we, we talked about this when we were in the prologue, John thinks that the Night's Watch will really have a chance if they go on the offensive here because of just how disorganised the wildlings are and how um, bunched up the wildlings, the, sort of the good fighters in this wildling army are just these pockets of people who all move together. So mm. there's large amounts, large sort of, I don't know, groups of people who would just... Would just bend and fall straight away under an attack mm. but i suppose that's what you've got to do isn't it because you're not moving an army as much as you're moving a civilization yeah and yeah, exactly. you can either have like one good soldier every because it's miles long isn't it so you can either have one good soldier every sort of hundred yards or so and then if you get attacked there then you've got a long time to wait before anybody turns up or you can have yeah. your sort of platoons of, of capable soldiers but either way it's fucking risky yeah well, it's it's just uh, it's just the only thing they can do, isn't it? I suppose yeah, the, only, yeah. the only reason all these people have come together is because Man's Raider has said, "Look, um, the others are coming back. We've got to get out of the north if we're going to survive." Yeah. Um, so it's it's almost in the same way the Night's Watch have sort of made a desperate move to get out beyond the wall and find out what's going on. The mm-hmm. the Wildlings are desperate as well. It's interesting that I mean, do you immediately? fall on the side of the night you, you, you're inclined I'm inclined to, to go with the Night's Watch and want them to succeed mm. but also they, when we're talking about them going on the offensive here they're basically trying to massacre just a, a frightened group of people who are trying to get out of a dangerous area yeah yeah very very true just because you've come in with one particular set of protagonists doesn't mean that they're necessarily in the right I mean but you know it, what it really is is a, is a, a kind of a clash of civilizations. On the one hand, you've got this, this group of people which is very not so much very honourable as it is very concerned with honour. And on the other hand, you've got this group of people that really cares about nothing so much as their own freedom and mm. kind of is a lot less tied to kind of social rules and regulations and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, if you put those two things to me, I'd struggle to tell you which one of them was fundamentally worse. You know, freedom or honour. Yeah. I suppose case against the wildlings as well. They, they, they do appear to have to love a bit of raping and pillaging when they get south of the wall. That's pretty much what they do when they when they get past the wall. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you can yeah. see why the um, the you know the the Night's Watch and people in the south want to do everything they can to keep them out. Um, but anyway, yeah. so so John goes into the main tent to meet Mans Raider, and there's the classic old switcheroo. There's this guy called <laughs> Tormin Giant's Bane sitting by the fire, effectively eating a whole chicken. <laughs> There's, a, there's this guy called Stir, who's the uh, Steer, who's the who's also known as the Magna of Then, um, and he's this high up wildling guy as well. I think mm. he doesn't have any ears, which is interesting. Mm. And then there's there's this musician in the corner just sort of playing away in a lute, and of course the musician turns out to be Mans Raider, and John hey. is the wrong person twice. Zing! <laughs> <laughs> but. It's in a way that's so that's so that's such like a primary school move, isn't it? You just imagine him getting up and being like, "Yeah, fucking had you, didn't I?" Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> ruffle your hair. You're all right, son. Come in. <laughs> yeah, 
And um, I mean, I got from so the, the interesting characters of these guys. Let's firstly just very quickly take this guy, Tom and Giant Spain, the guy eating a whole chicken. Um, mm. He's big, gruff, extremely strong, and incessantly cheerful. It seems <laughs> uh, he, he he struck me as sort of like a, a north of the wall version of the Great John, who hangs about with Rob. I don't know what you thought. <laughs> Actually, you're onto something there, and you can you can imagine them sharing ancestry, can't you? Because they're not oh, really yeah. that far apart. Um, yeah. One of them one of them's a kind of dangerous but jovial psychopath who happens to obey the rules and the other one's a dangerous but jovial psychopath who you know we found out later um survived the cold winter by sleeping in sleeping in the belly of a giant <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and the great job would do the same part, thing but yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, and there's this dangerous exchange between Mansredo and John, where you think if John overplays his hand and lies too much, mm. he's going to be killed. Because he, Mansredo is basically deciding whether or not to let John become a um, become a member, that join the Wildlings, or if he's going to kill him out of hand. Mm. What did you make of Mansredo? Because I thought, compared to the series, he was a bit more sort of, I don't want to say cheerful, but more sort of has sort of laughing eyes and, and and had a bit more of a smile about him than the very dour character you get in the series. <laughs> yeah, well, because in the series he's played by Kieran Hines, who's made an entire career out of looking like death himself, <laughs> <laughs> and and plays it very well. Um, yeah, he's more fun, isn't he? Like you, you, I think, and I think this is really wise because, like, if the wildlings are going to be part of the story you want to tell, you've got to make us feel something other for them than than everything we've been told again and again and again by characters of the Night's Watch, which is that they are untrustworthy, shambolic bastards. Um, mm. They may be that, but they're also human beings, and you kind of need to show that. I really liked Mance Raider in this scene. I thought he was really good. Yeah, I think it's I think it's because it's, it's believable that he'd leave the Night's Watch because because he's this sort of like if you like enjoys the good things in life fun um you know music loving arts loving kind of guy yeah um you know because the the, the series version this dour miserable bloke you you imagine he'd be perfectly suited to the night's watch because that's what they are and i i like the fact that Mansraider's character here sort of clashes with the very idea of the Night's Watch and the re- we find out the reason he left was because he got really badly wounded on a ranging expedition and then was tended to by this wildling woman who, who uh, sort of repaired his cloak and sewed some sort of expensive red um, fabric into it as a sort of sign of affection and when he got back to when he got back to the, to the, to the Castle Black or to wherever it was I think it might have been the Shadow Tower or whatever um, he was reprimanded for having this cloak which had something else other than black in it and yeah. was, he basically got a bollock in and sent back to the wall and he just thought you know what, Fuck life's it. too short for this and I'd rather <laughs> actually have a bit of freedom, so he ran, he ran away and, and then there are these great little stories of daring which he had so he, he's seen John twice before, once when he came down um, as a member of the Night's Watch to visit Winterfell when John was only a little boy and once again, when do you remember when King Robert came up to get Ned at the very start of the first book? Yeah. Um, so Mance Raider was there as a musician. He disguised himself as a musician and went down to have a look at this king. Isn't that and brilliant? It, it is, yeah. And it just shows the um, ingenuity of some, of some members beyond the wall, I suppose, as well. Mm, yeah. And more than that, he climbs over a wall, which is a 700-foot wall of ice. Yeah. 
just to go and have a bit of a shufty. Like, you can see why he's brought together all of these disparate warring tribes. Because they're all mm. like, uh, I'm hardcore, I, 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 I kill giants and sleep in their stomachs to keep off the cold of the worst type of winter, and I wrestle direwolves quicker than you can blink, but he's fucking something else, I'm following him. Yeah. He's yeah. fantastic, it really is. Um, yeah, 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 really interesting. The bit that... Um the, the, the reason John manages to get accepted by Mance Raider is Mance Raider basically says, why do you want to join us? Why would you give up the Night's Watch? You know, mm. this is why I joined. This is why I left the Night's Watch. Why did you? And, and you need to convince me. And John's excuse or reason for running is that he says when he was, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't like the, the formalities in the South where just because he was a bastard, um, he had to sit at tables below his his relatives and things like that, and I mean, I mean, and he's believed. And when I read this the first time, I thought it's it's a bit of a bit of a stretch. I'm not sure Mansreda would have believed that. I mean, I'm so, I'm, I'm I was surprised yeah. that Mansreda believed that. In the series, yeah. I think it's stronger because yeah, the reason John gives is that he saw Craster giving that baby up to the to whatever was in the forest. And he saw the the Lord Commander be okay with it, and that was what drove him away. And he wants to be on the side that fights for the living, mm. you know. And that was I thought that was much stronger and more believable. Um, but anyway, either way, he's managed to he's managed to get on board, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and you're happy about that because obviously otherwise the plot wouldn't go anywhere. But I agree with you completely. In the TV series, it's much much stronger. Um, mm. You know, just that line, I'm here to fight for the people who are on the side of the living. Great. Although it wouldn't make a lot of sense just at the moment because I, is John kind of conscious of the others? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you're right. I think like, that would be a hole for the book, wouldn't it? Yeah, they might. it might be still a little bit sort of like, to him, they're just a rumour. Whereas in the mm. TV series, by this point, he's well aware that these things are moving around the forest. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're back with Daenerys next, uh, final bit for today, mm. and she's she's on a ship because obviously she got these ships from um, Arston Whitebeard and Strong Belwus when they turned up. So she's she's off to she's off to sort of take back. You think oh she's finally might be on the way to to Westeros. Mm. Um, her dragons are growing up. Um, they're sort of flying about, and you, you get the sense that they're a bit bigger now. There's a. <laughs> There's this obviously mutual dislike between Sejora, her old advisor, and Arston Whitebeard, who's this sort of new guy on in town who's trying to help her as well. Mm. And you can see there's real tension between those two. We've mentioned it before, haven't we? Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's in, it is, and there's always these little digs going back and forth as well. I mean, there's one bit here where um, Whitebeard's talking about what makes men good at fighting because they decide how to get an army. And... Mm. Um, he says it could be something as much as a a lady's favor, which which gets a which gets a man going. And he kind of pointedly looks at Sajora when he says it because that's really a big part of Jorah's past. Yeah. When he sort of Jorah won this tournament because because of this woman who eventually married, mm-hmm. um, and Jorah immediately realizes what it, you know what he's getting at, and this this dislike increases. Yeah, well, with uh, good reason, I think. I, yeah. For all that for all that Jorah is over prickly a lot of the time, like. Yeah, just like somebody pulling off that kind of thing. Like it's it's kind of mean girls level of burn, isn't it? It's like <laughs> like um 
the guy who says it should just kind of go up in his face afterwards and kind of go, mm-hmm, kind of <laughs> click his fingers, move his head side to side. You know, like it's that sort of level of bullshit. And I think, <laughs> to be honest with you, I think if I was um, if I was uh, Sejura, I'd be pissed. <laughs> who the yeah, fuck is Exactly. That was just what I was going to say. Also, there's an element of who the hell are you to, yeah. to sort of just sort of stride in here. You get the feeling that he does really speak beyond his station. This guy, uh, Whitebeard, mm. um, from considering he's come from nowhere, and um, and he he seems to almost look down on Sajora at times. And you just think, you know, he seems to have a quite a big opinion of yourself. But anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. we have this we have this this last part in Daenerys' cabin in her private cabin. And Sajora comes in to sort of try and convince her, and eventually succeeds convincing her to to go to Astapor, this big slaving city, to buy mm. herself an army of slaves mm-hmm. called Unsullied. And she t- he tells this story about how th- their discipline and how they manage to see off a, a massive uh, cal- uh, group of Dothraki or Kalasar uh, in the mm. past, and that mm. they're really, really powerful. And... Um, it's, it's sort of laced with this sort of sexual tension as well because there's Sejora is obviously there's this moment where um, this Daenerys is sort of I think she's, she's almost naked or she's she's just got this blanket on her yeah. and uh, and it falls from one of her shoulders um, and she sort of it basically it falls from her shoulders and um, she hurriedly covers covers it again. And then the next thing is she speaks to Sajora, and the, the next thing Sajora does is described as doing is he lifts his eyes from her shoulder, yeah. and he just. It, it, I love the way that was told. It's yeah. really, it's really deft, isn't it? Yeah. And and it ends with um, she sort of turns away, really excited about going to to sort of come to an agreement to go and get these this army. Yeah. And as she turns back, he's sort of next to her, and he and he kisses her. She's like, takes her in his arms and kisses her. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, it's like, whoa, homie, buy a girl a drink. Um, <laughs> and it's sort of, it's like, it's one of those things that, is it, you're just not sure. I don't think anyone's sure in this moment, Daenerys or Jorah or whatever, what it is. Is it, is it really suddenly romantic? Is it, is it terrible? Odd. Is it, it's just weird, isn't it? And we're left, it ends so suddenly yeah. that we're left thinking, God, what does that mean? Yeah. And it's weird. I mean, and I think the TV series actually does this a lot better. Kind of, again, the book brings out all of this tension and makes it much more explicit. Whereas in the TV series, it's just kind of implicit. Hmm. He really fancies her. He's not going to say anything about it. In the TV series, crucially, we don't have this sense of like great heartbreak in Sajora's past. So he's a much yeah. less complicated character, Sajora, in the TV series. Yeah. Um, he doesn't have this whole thing about this beautiful woman that he gave up everything to be with who then he wasn't with and he's had this this awful situation and then he sees her in Daenerys in the TV series he's just this sort of like buff knight going Khaleesi <laughs> the lamb of the Lazarene and who and could resist that exactly and that sort of chocolate and cigars tone of voice is as close as it gets to, <laughs> as close as it gets to open open propositioning but it's in the book he's fucking you know uh, uh whenever it was at the start of the last book he was like kind of i, I saw i like you i like you and then <laughs> right here he's you know just going kind of it. going in for the kiss yeah yeah um because uh, yeah because uh, yeah, that doesn't happen in the series is it? or at least it hasn't happened as of yet <laughs> and um 
And yeah, that's quite interesting. Mean, it's really funny. There's loads of stuff online about the series Jorah and mm. about him being stuck in the friend zone. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's one bit. There's one bit in the series where he, he looks at it for quite a while and then looks away. Mm. And there's loads of frames of it. And it's um and it's like underneath he's much like you got to tell her now, Jorah. Tell her now, Jorah. Now's the time. Got to tell her now. And then he looks away. And goes, damn it, Jorah. <laughs> 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 it's absolute gift bait, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, dynamic between those two. And as far as we've seen, Daenerys doesn't seem to be that way inclined. She doesn't seem to return that sort of affection. But mm. you never know. She she seems quite confused whenever this kind of thing comes up. So it leaves it on a bit of a cliff edge here, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 it does. And uh, I'm not expecting us to get down off of that cliff edge anytime soon, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So that brings us to the end of the first part of um, of our Storm of Swords book one, Steel and Snow. What did you think of it? How has it started for you? Because it's just, it's just sort of an introduction to all the different characters, that, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, I really liked it just because you've rocketed straight back into it. And, you, you know, you end the last book and it's got a really dramatic set piece and then you've got... And then things start to fall apart. George Martin's a great one for sort of starting to set up the next book at the end of the previous book. Kind of yeah. like lots of plot lines actually start at the end of his books. And so I've had this wait between book two and book three going what the fuck happened then what happened then and god bless him he he does a whistle stop tour of westeros to show me exactly what happened then i'm very happy about that um i'm i'm curious what's going to go down with um you know between rob and his mother because she's given away his one big kind of asset um you know you've got daenerys and sejura what the fuck's going to happen there is Arya ever going to do anything other than wander around the place looking frightened stay tuned (laughs) Um, it's all great setup stuff, and I'm really looking forward to it. And and what's going to happen in the north with uh, with the Night's Watch? Me, yeah, yeah. I could, <laughs> because it's becoming clearer and clearer that they're all going to die one way or another. <laughs> like they, you know, they just had the other storm in, and George, you are not forgiven for cutting away from that battle. By the way, not forgiven <laughs> in the slightest bit. <laughs> you better make up for it. Yeah, fucking hey, I'm going to write him a letter. <laughs> Dear George, in re your infuriating habit of cutting away from really kick-ass battle scenes. <laughs> it won't do. It simply will not do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so as ever, if you have any thoughts on uh, on this book so far, Storm of Swords, or on the on the podcast as a whole, you can get them into sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at sharkliveroil. And uh, other than that, I think it's just time to wrap things up. Oh, I've got to say where we're going to read to for next week. That's the big, that's the big thing, isn't it? Hold on. So, uh, next week, we're going to read about 100 and odd pages, up as far as, if you've got the paperback, to page 235. And that will be, let me just bring it up, two, three, five. So you're reading as far as a chapter about Sam. Ooh, chapter about Sam. Sobbing, Ooh. Sam took another step, and you stop reading there. Of course he did. Ooh. So, oh. it looks like... That Sam might well, 
he might be alive, or he might be alive at least for another couple of pages. <laughs> doesn't sound too good for him, does it? <laughs> yeah. Mind you, any other character sobbing took another step, we'd be like, oh, he's not long for this world. Sam, you get the impression, would sob and take another step just because he had to go to the toilet in the middle of the night. So That's a good point, yeah. You know what I mean? There's a, lot, yeah. there's a wide range of peril that he could experience without actually, <laughs> without yeah. actually dying. Yeah, so for next in time for for next time, read up to page two three two or two three five, sorry. And it's the uh, it's the chapter that begins it's a chapter about Sam which begins sobbing, Sam took another step. Stop reading when you get to there, and we will do the podcast on that part of the book for next time. Bosh. Until then, Dave. Until then, Matt. Goodbye. Bye.